Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 283. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 283 you're listening to. My guest today is Jermaine Hamilton, who is a managing partner over at Studio Circle Recordings, as well as the lead audio engineer, which is located in San Mateo, California. So we're going to discuss Jermaine's journey to that position, all the details. Jermaine Hamilton coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about information diets and staying focused on your audio world and tasks. Recently, I had Bjorgvin Benedictson on, on WCA number 282. Bjorgvin talked about Timothy Ferris's book, The 4-Hour Workweek. I read that book around 2007 when it came out, and it's been many years since I've cracked it open again. I no longer own the book, so I downloaded the audiobook, which I'm a fan of these days, audiobooks. And listening at two times speed have almost completed the book in a few days. And really great to dig back into that and just listen to some of the concepts that he talks about in there. One of the concepts that he talks about is information diets. Now, regardless of whether or not you are a Timothy Ferris fan or you like what he has to say in this book, information diets and the overall concept there is just to limit the amount of extra information coming at you so you can stay focused on the things that are important to you, whether that's work-related things or family-related things or personal things, what whatever it is. And some of the things that eat up our time to do that and eat up our brain power are 24-hour news, uh, social media, and emails. Let's start with the news. So consider going on maybe a 30-day detox of the news, right? If you are constantly trying to keep up with every nook and cranny of coronavirus or scandals in Washington or whatever it is, consider taking a break from that. If there is something that is really affecting society as a whole that is important, I bet your friends are going to be talking about it. So one thing to do is to get a summary rather than sit up and watch news all day, sit on the couch and watch news all day. Get your summaries from your friends, you know. In in the course of conversation, maybe it's, hey, what's going on in the news? Is there anything going on in the news that I should know about that is, you know, mission critical here? That's something to consider. So eliminating that for about 30 days and observe how you feel afterwards because the news has the ability to really affect our moods. And that, whether you realize it or not, affects the other people around you. The people in your household that you're quarantining with, that's a potential issue because you may see something on the news that upsets you and then you may take it out on somebody in your household by you know, raising your voice or yelling at them or whatever. So that's something to consider. And obviously that would affect also your ability to focus when it comes to, let's say you're trying to do something like a mix or a master, you're trying to finish your record and all you can think about is what you just watched on the news. So give it a break if you can, keep that in mind. Social media, I've always talked about this. The Facebook news feed eradicator is a great tool if you just treat social media like an addiction. 
Yeah. If you have had any past addictions, like I used to be a heavy smoker long ago, if you need something to help you get through that, the Facebook news newsfeed eradicator is great. And I'll include the, a link in the show notes to that. I'm not going to dwell on the social media thing uh, too much here. Email. This is an interesting thing. We all have different email habits and you may check your email constantly. Maybe you sit there on uh, Gmail and hit the refresh button every so often because, I don't know, you're waiting for something or you're just bored or, I don't know, you need some kind of reinforcement that you're important. I don't know. Consider this. Consider limiting the times you check email to maybe twice a day. You know, if something is super important, consider setting up an autoresponder to people that says, I check email twice a day. If it's mission critical that you reach me, here's my phone number. Now, that could be a problem for spam email that you might get, but think about that. There's some there's some ideas there. And that said, I do have friends that have the autoresponders and sometimes I'm trying to you know, send them something and when the autoresponders come in, I get totally annoyed. So weigh that out, figure that out if that's gonna work for you. But the point is, is not to obsessively check email and try to structure your day so that maybe you check your email at, at maybe noon and maybe uh, three o'clock, I don't know. And in between that, if you have projects to do, whether they're paid projects or not, maybe they're projects of your own creation that you've come up with during this quarantine time. Like today, I'm gonna go through six, you know, four terabyte hard drives and figure out what's going on with these drives and what's on them and what I should do with the information. I don't know, something like that. But the point is, is to really structure your time with your email and not make it a constant thing that happens throughout the day. In other words, don't keep the browser open while you're in the middle of a, a mixing or mastering session and have those annoying messages pop up. Oh, I got a new email. Ooh, bright and shiny thing. Let me go check that out and stop working on whatever it is you're working on. That's really the point. Give yourself a break from the news and cut back on your social media use a bit if you can and get that email under control so that it's not taking up so much of your day. And being a former smoker, I can, I, I can attest to this. When you kind of remove those addictions and focus on other stuff in your life, you'd be amazed at how much other stuff you can get done. For those of you that have faced addictions before in any way, shape or form, will understand that. For those of you that haven't, give it a shot. See what you think. See if you are more productive and see if you get the tasks done. You know, there's tasks that you do throughout your day in that have to do with audio that for some reason, maybe they take you an hour to three hours longer than they should. And maybe you can condense that time down, get stuff done, and then move on to hanging out with your family or tackling another project and getting more stuff done in general. So something to consider. Thanks for listening. Check out Timothy Ferris's four-hour work week. I'll put a link in the show notes and uh, carry on, my friends. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Jermaine Hamilton here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Jermaine, welcome to the podcast. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're just in Palo Alto, right? No, we are actually in San Mateo now. Oh, you're in San Mateo. Okay. The old annex facility in Eastmanlo Park off of O'Brien closed down about seven years ago. A little tiny unknown company called Facebook took over uh, the property about give or take seven years ago. So basically, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, we're now calling ourselves Studio Circle Recordings. We found a new location in San Mateo, California. We'll get to that. I want to I want to brush up a little bit on your background. Sure. So in your early years as a kid, really, you, you learned to play musical instruments, guitar, trumpet, bass, drums, etc. That was kind of an early influence, but it wasn't until around 95 you picked up your first four track. And then your first real studio gig was in 97. Yes. Tell me about that first studio gig. Well, the first studio gig was basically working for the Annex Studios in East Menlo Park. I, I was still in high school. I was still a high school student. You know, it was like a summer internship program. And it was right at the time where tape was nearing the end and digital was heavily taken over. So I kind of had the opportunity to experience both worlds. 
Mm -hmm. My duties back then, I worked in the tape duplication department at the Annex. I was running the cassette duplication equipment. And I guess the coolest project I ever did there was the Tickle Me Elmo doll. <laughs> so <laughs> they, they gave me the opportunity to sit in and they actually gave me assistant engineering credit. The actual actor of Tickle Me Elmo, the, the guy who created the character, was in the booth. So it was a pretty cool experience, yeah. Tell me about interning at the Music Annex back then. What were your experiences? What was your takeaway from that time period? I worked there under David Porter and Russell Bond. They were gracious enough to, to bring me in. It was a pretty traditional program. I remember they had files on each of their interns, and it was pretty well organized, actually. They would follow our progress. You know, they had a little checklist and weekly, monthly type of projects for us. They had us do a lot of... Uh, technical reading on the downtime and traditional intern stuff, go for this and go for that. I did their program for the summer. So I was probably actually there for only about three or four months. For me, it was like a jumping stone. So I was just really jumping in and trying to absorb everything I could. And a lot of ideas and concepts were kind of over my head. I was just a sponge and learning. But where did you go after that? What happened when that internship was up? I started taking classes at the local community college, uh, Foothill College, and I was thinking of transferring to San Jose State at that point for computer science, actually. So I wasn't sure if I wanted to pursue music or audio or if I wanted a quote unquote real job. <laughs> right. So I did the program and I finished it and went on hiatus as far as engineering. You know, I played music. I played some bands and stuff like that. But I did start a semester of San Jose State just to realize computer science wasn't for me. So after that, I applied for a position at Studio 880 in Oakland, a.k.a. Jingletown. Right. And just for the audience, Studio 880 is the studio that preceded Jingletown, which was the Green Day studio. So this is over by, kind of by the Oakland airport. Yeah, yeah. East Oakland area. I, I guess that they called that neighborhood Jingletown. Yeah, I, I think there's some sort of historical thing with Jingletown and, and that location. So I don't know if that means that there was uh, some sort of music connection back in the day. I'm not totally certain, but... I uh, hit those guys up. I found a music connection. Is that what it is? The A&R directory, basically. Yeah. And I went down the list. I made old school resumes on good resume paper. I physically mailed them out to a bunch of the bigger facilities at that time, including Toast and places like that. And got a call back from Studio 880 and went on the interview, the tour. And, and the interview, they, they never really told me who they work with and this and that. They just kind of showed me the facility and they offered me a position. They said, hey, you seem pretty chill. If you want the gig, you can have it. If you want to think about it, let us know. But looking around, I'm seeing this world-class facility. And so I, I knew right there, I was like, uh, yeah, I'll take the job. And so then my first day, they say, oh, by the way, this is Green Day's facility. And then yeah, next thing you know, here comes Billy Joe. And for me at that point in my career, it was the first time I'd worked with someone notable of that caliber. So I was just very wowed <laughs> yeah. at the time. I've been listening to them when I was younger. So was that like an hourly thing or a salary thing? Or how did that work? Minimum wage, basically. It's just enough to pay for gas and to get you by. But again, I mean, I was still learning back then. I interned and assisted for a long time before even myself was comfortable and confident enough to jump behind the seat as a lead engineer, because we all know it's one thing to observe it, but it's a whole different world once you're actually running the console. I was still in a, the lower ranks and I was still 
Just really just being a fly on the wall, learning. I wasn't really necessarily in a rush to start making big money and this and that. I, I just wanted to really just understand all the concepts and truly understand them, not just kind of memorization and learning ideas, but I just wanted to really absorb the process and, and even the process as far as the interpersonal relationships in, in a studio environment. Down the road, you know, I started working at uh, like like Hyde Street Studios and stuff like that. And then I started to take on a little more roles as as you know, lead engineer. In these situations like at 880 and Hyde Street, were you essentially a house engineer and you would take the gigs that were assigned to you? Well, 880, I mean, I was still pretty much an assistant. And then Hyde Street, Hyde Street, it's pretty much like freelance. It's kind of like trade work. So you get studio time in exchange for doing work around the facility and stuff like that. And then they kind of farm out the projects as they come in to mm. whoever, I guess, is qualified or whoever needs the gig at that particular time. You also spent some time at Airship. Yeah, I was uh, part of the early Airship crew. I met Neil Gobley working at Hyde Street. And so he kind of pulled me from them to help him in, in about the first year of Airship. So I kind of helped with that transition. He did bring me in at that point to be the general manager. However, the first year was pretty rough <laughs> at Airship. And why is that? Well, you know, it was just it's the first year. No one had heard of them. I believe people were familiar with who Airship was previously. There was a lot of like construction. There was a lot of upgrading the facility and little projects like this, just kind of bringing the facility up to spec and all that sort of things. Was it Bayview? Bayview Studios, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's what it was. That's right. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. So the first year was kind of a ghost town. I mean, we had some projects coming in. I mean, it was a great experience, but for me at that time and, and financially, it was kind of a challenge. They started towards the end of the whole Wall Street stock market crash. So there was challenges to the economy at that time. But yeah, I mean, it was great to be there. The facility is awesome. It's definitely a, a great studio. And now they're flourishing. They've been doing a lot of big things. I think it just takes a little bit of time to get that centrifugal motion going to start building up your clientele. You had a stint in West Hollywood at Nightbird Studios. Yeah. Tell me about that. Because if you're looking at your LinkedIn profile, all the studios you have on there are Bay Area locations, except that one. Tell me about that. So when I went to work for Studio 880 with Green Day and Black Alicious and another artist that were working there, I was still very green and I was just learning. I was there at an opportune moment where they actually did need a really experienced engineer to help out. And I, I just wasn't there yet. If I had had a little more experience, like where I am now, maybe I would have been doing lead engineering and stuff, but I just wasn't there. I basically decided to relocate to Southern California for a little bit. I had a brother living out there and he offered me a room in his apartment. So long story short, I went to Southern California and I went back to school to fill in the knowledge gaps that I felt that I had. And then once I finished that program, then I went to Nightbird Studios in West Los Angeles. Yeah, I worked there for about a year. It's definitely interesting. You know, they get a lot of the eight type projects. They get all the celebrities. And so it's kind of a it's kind of a circus there. It was cool to uh, have that experience. So I was there about a year and then just decided to come back to the Bay Area after that. Did anything change for you there working at Nightbird, going to the school? After those experiences, did you have a different mindset at all? I think it was after all that experience that I was starting to feel more comfortable in my skin as a professional and, and as someone who's capable of not only running a session, but also running the equipment and producing people too. So I definitely feel 
coming back to the Bay Area that I had a lot of experience and, and arsenal under my belt. I've always believed in like the slow burn. I've never felt like I was in a rush. I have some students, so I feel like some of the younger kids, they just want to be the engineer or they want to be the producer and they don't necessarily care to put in all the blood, sweat and tears that it takes to build up that experience. And for me, though, I I just wanted to learn and I just had no rush to jump into this until I really felt comfortable myself internally, you know, mm-hmm. and that way I'm, I'm also able to provide a good service to people where I just feel confident that I'm delivering them the best service that I can deliver to them. Take me from when you got back into the Bay Area. It seems that you, in 2012, you came back to the Annex. Well, what happened with the Annex was I'd moved back to Palo Alto from living in the East Base. So I was living in Oakland and I was working at Airship. And then I wrapped that up, came back to Middle Park, Palo Alto area. And that's where I reconnected with the Annex. So I called the Annex. My current business partner, Forrest Lawrence, picked up. And I said, hey, I used to work there back in the day and I have this and that experience and I'm calling you guys, seeing what's going on. Hmm. And so he said, yeah, come on in. So I drove down and I went to the new facility and Forrest Lawrence filled me in on what happened where they lost the old facility to Facebook and they basically were in a scramble to keep the business open. So they found this facility in San Mateo, also called Fang Studios, which was at the time, about seven or eight years ago, was kind of like a like a rock and roll metal studio, but it was kind of grungy. It wasn't really up to par at all. So Forrest brought me in. In about a span of like three to four months, I kind of came in from helping him to engineering and then to managing the annex because at that point, a lot of legacy employees had jumped ship. Because they they lost the old facility. The new facility was about half the size of the old facility, and it wasn't up to spec. They were losing clients. I think a lot of the legacy Annex employees were just kind of mentally checked out at this point. So basically, it was just this prime time where things just kind of fell into place. I was like the young, fresh, hungry guy, and people were exiting and doing this and that. At that time, Forrest Lawrence, uh, his wife was pregnant, so he was having his daughter so, you know, they, they tossed me the keys to the car. They said, hey, I have a family starting and this and that. Do you want to manage? Do you want to take over the helm? And I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, definitely. So this was about 2012 to 2013, I believe. Mm-hmm. I started to take over the managerial lead engineering duties. And then about a year later, uh, Russell Bond, he decided to exit and move on. So that's kind of where Studio Circle Recordings was born, was once Russell kind of decided to exit and do his own thing. He gave us permission to keep the name The Annex Studios. So he gave us a DBA. He gave us the legacy email and phone number. You know, so we still do get a lot of legacy clients from the Annex days. But otherwise, we decided to go with a new name because we felt like we are kind of a fresh company because things are so different from here in like the old Annex Studios. We just thought it would be appropriate to tack on a new name in addition to the Annex. Tell me about Studio Circle now. Tell me about the place. Tell me about who's involved and all the particulars there. So somehow we've survived for uh, about seven years. And yeah, we're, we're still here. It's basically myself and Forrest Lawrence still. We have some freelance engineers that come in and stuff like that, um, some internships. But otherwise, we're pretty slim. <laughs> We're pretty efficiently run facility. So it's a, it's a 3,000 f- square foot facility and three rooms, Studio A, Studio B, and Studio C, which is an editing suite. Mm. So, so it's pretty big. It's a pretty big facility. And what are your main clients comprised of? I would say it's probably a 50-50 split between tech, 
a lot of voiceover work related to the tech industry and probably mainly like local artists, local musicians, local rappers, local bands. And then we do a lot of audiobooks, we do a lot of podcasts, VO commercial spots like that. What aspects of being an audio professional do you find challenging? You know, a lot of this stuff is subjective. What's good for you might not be good for me. You know, if it's your own project, usually you're your own biggest critic of it. I guess it's just getting out of that mentality of like uh, perfectionism, right? Like splitting hairs. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's good to to do the best you can and to uh, strive for excellence. But I myself don't necessarily believe in uh, perfection because perfection is just a concept. There's no perfect anything in, in this world, you know. So sometimes it's easy to get caught up, right? Caught up in that uh, that mentality. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. Do you have any daily routines that are important to you? Like personally, health-wise, or any or anything like that? I, I try to jog in the morning, try to get a little bit of exercise, get the blood pumping. I do love my coffee. <laughs> As do I. I. I believe in Zen, I guess. I, I like to try to calm myself before like a big session or something. You, you know, I feel like when you're in that Zen moment, that's when you can really do your good work. When when you're in the moment. So sometimes if you have distractions or you have a lot of stuff going on in your life, sometimes it's easy to miss the details and the small things. So I try to meditate. I always just try to be calm and present and just practice uh, patience and kindness. This job, it's not about us. It's about the client. I do believe it's a service-based industry. You're providing a service to the client. Mm-hmm. If you're not present, then how can you deliver the best work you can to them? So the structure of the studio, the business structure... Like, how do you all pay yourselves? How does everybody function there? Is it a freelance function? But you did say you were incorporated, so obviously there is a business structure there. We are structured as an LLC, so we are a limited liability company. 
And the way that we decided to structure ourselves is we do not do like 1099s, like independent contractor, and we, we do not do a W-2, like a regular employee. So we do something called draws or pulls. And basically we receive a K-2 statement at the end of the month, like a partner draw. And whatever we charge... 50% will go to the company bank and then the other half will go to us. So if I'm doing a corporate session or something for a hundred bucks an hour, half of that will end up in the bank in our operating expenses. And then the other half we'll pay ourselves with. Oh, I get it. I get it. And do you all try to keep your rates consistent based on the project? Yeah. I mean, we have a standard rate and then we do have a business corporate rate. We have a rate for video. We do offer a friends and family discounted rate. And what we usually say is that if you have booked a minimum of three sessions with us, then in our eyes, we consider you a, a regular. So once you become a regular, we're happy to work a deal with you because we understand how it is and, and we're not trying to nickel and dime people. I mean, we want to stay in business. We want to be profitable. But I think we all know that if you go into this industry to make a ton of money, then you're probably not in the right industry. I think we all know that a lot of people do this because we have to. It's our passion. It's our calling. It's our drive. And if we're able to pay the bills and keep a roof over our head doing it, then that's even better. Tell me about how the coronavirus situation currently has affected you guys as far as like, you know, clients coming in, et cetera. Does business continue for you all? And how does it continue? Yeah, it's definitely been a ghost town. We've definitely seen a significant drop in business. We do have a small handful of continuing projects that have been kind of floating us. We do have some some open invoices we're trying to pull in. I am getting a very limited amount of remote mixing mastering projects. So I've done a few of those. It's pretty interesting process. I mean, it's kind of new to me, but I find it tedious doing the mix, sending a high resolution reference to the client and then having them wait, listen, get back to you in half an hour. And then you do the tweak and send it back. I'm finding that process interesting. But basically for us, I think we're kind of used to boom and bust. I think we're kind of used to feast or famine. We keep our overhead low. The same thing with Airship Labs. The first couple of years of Studio Circle was up and down. We'd have some super really good months and then we'd have some pretty slow months. DeForest and I, we're just like, oh, <laughs> whatever. You know, for now, at this point in April, we're, we're just kind of like, oh, well, it is what it is. We have a buffer. Now, if things persist and continue, then we'll definitely run into some issues. But I think every studio, at least independent studio or mom and pop studio, should definitely have a nest egg or have a buffer because you never know when work will stop coming in or whatever. Or when a virus will appear out of, out of the blue. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, a buffer. I wanted to ask you, do you have a particular overarching philosophy with regards to money and money management and how it pertains to being an audio professional? Yeah, I mean, it's challenging. I think it's good to have a nest egg. And even though you might see this new piece of gear come out and it's shiny and, and you want to put it on the credit card and get this latest and greatest thing, you know, a, a lot of studios are running computers that are eight years old. They're using vintage microphones or legacy equipment. And so a lot of these world-class facilities do not have the latest and greatest software or hardware. I think it's a trap to kind of fall into that, oh, I need this or I need that to to make an album. Because at the end of the day, you, you don't. It's nice to have, but sometimes you don't need to spend all, all this money on, on gear and acquiring all this stuff. Sometimes it's just mastering what you do have before you acquire new new equipment. 
I wanted to ask you, I know that most of us or many of us in audio are, you know, our passion is whether it's music or film or games at its core, there is a load of possibilities for doing corporate audio work. And it's been my experience. And I'd like to hear how it's been for you in that the more you get involved in that world, the money goes up the demands on the audio actually go down in terms of not, I'm not not quality per se, but just the expectations and the time involvement. If you could compare those two, I, I think you, you, you understand where I'm going is that it's strange how you can make more money, spend less time and not get the same kind of insecurities that come with music as compared to corporate audio. What's been your experience? Well, corporate audio, they, they have budgets, right? <laughs> if you get offered a bid on a project for Google or whoever, you know that they have deep pockets and you know that the local blues guy down the street doesn't have deep pockets. So he he's doing it because it's his passion and, and it's his passion work. Corporate is just a different world. It's kind of apples to oranges, I think, as far as doing corporate projects versus like music stuff. I love them both, to be honest. They're just kind of like two different worlds. The way I feel about it is that I feel that the corporate stuff subsidizes the costs for, for the bands and musicians. So it is a tech work that kind of keeps our doors open and it does kind of enable us to work with local artists and to have regulars and offer them like a friends and family discount so that they can keep working on their projects that we're not penny pinching them because they already have a tight budget. Yeah. But it is interesting though, just how like what you would earn on say a music project in say like a two week job, you could earn in like two or three days right. <laughs> on a corporate job. And the audio demands are so much more simple. Right, right. Absolutely. I think what's important is to always have a diversified revenues to tap into. So mm -hmm. I, I feel like it's good to be doing it all. So have like your podcast stuff going on. We do have a niche where we do like student audition tapes. So I feel like sometimes one avenue will dry up. So sometimes there might be a month where we're not getting as much audiobook or podcast projects. And so what gets filled up with that will be maybe, you know, local rappers or student audition tapes come in and then maybe student audition tape season dries up. And then we get more audiobooks or or whatever. So so once one avenue of stuff kind of dries up, then you have something else coming in to kind of keep keep you busy and keep the doors open. So whether it's like just doing like mix and mastering projects or tracking or doing, you know, doing editing projects. Uh we we do we do IVRs, the IVR telephone prompts and stuff like that. So so as long what, what does IVR stand for? IVR stands for Interactive virtual recording? Is that what it is? Interactive voice response. Interactive. <laughs> yes. Interactive. I just looked it up. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's basically, you know, when you call Bank of America and it's like, hello, for English, press one, para espanol, press two. Basically, it's those kind of prompts. So we did those prompts for like the BART system. So when you go to BART, well, eventually when you're able to go to BART again and put some coins in the, the ticket machine, we recorded those voiceovers for that. That was kind of cool. That's the interesting thing about the world around us taking BART as a case in point. The audio needs of things like that. I don't know if you've like, and this is obviously going to be only unique to Bay Area people, but when you go to BART, have you ever noticed that in one direction, it's a male voice announcer and in the other direction, it's a female voice announcer? Oh, interesting. Right. <laughs> I wonder why that is. 
Yeah, I think the one going to the airport is a male voice, and the one going away from the airport right. in other directions is 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 a female voice. Is there some type of psychological reason for that, do you think? I don't know. That may be for those that are blind. Oh, I see. Like a continuity. If it's a male voice, then you're heading one direction. And if you're a, if it's a female voice, then, then it's indicating you're exiting or something. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Just to make sure that you're on the right platform and et cetera, et cetera. But it's, I've always found it interesting. If you observe your surrounding environment, what audio cues are there and you think, Somebody recorded that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, it's it's everywhere. The IVRs are very interesting because they need clarity, but in a low bitrate file. So sometimes they will ask us to send them like an 8-bit file. However, they still want clarity and, you know, they still want enunciation. So sometimes it's really just experimenting with how can we capture the take and then downsample it to a point that the quality is maintained. I believe there has been instances where we've delivered it to them and they've rejected it because even though it's a low bit quality take, they still need the clarity of, of the- Of a higher res file. Mm -hmm. Do you tend to record at higher resolutions to begin with to get down to that low delivery footprint? Yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been a while since I've done one of those. But it's just a combination of experimenting because sometimes too, it even even the mic placement too. So even sometimes how you're going in down the signal chain can affect that downsampled file. I mean, we're not going in at 32 or anything like that. I believe it's just, I think 24 bit for the low noise floor. Do you guys have a way that you can monitor in real time what that's going to sound like so that you can make adjustments in real time? Actually, when they did the Tickle Me Elmo doll, they had the doll's guts. They they had the ROM and, and the breadboard. And after every take, they would actually dump the take into the ROM and play it back so they could actually hear Elmo, what it would actually sound like coming off of the read-only memory chip. But yeah, there's plugins, but I don't think we've gone that far, <laughs> that deep into yeah. monitoring it in, in real time. It probably would save you some time. Work-life balance, how do, you, how do you manage that for you personally? I guess... Being your own manager kind of helps because if I have plans for a Saturday night, then I'll just block it off on my calendar. So if an inquiry comes in, I can just say, oh, well, I'm booked that evening. But I make a lot of sacrifices for this business, to be honest. I mean, I'm here almost seven days a week. I mean, I'm, I'm not married. I don't, I don't have a girlfriend. And I still feel that we're still in a, in a building stage of Studio Circles. So I might not be the best person to ask that question to because I do still kind of eat, sleep, live Studio Circle. But it is definitely is important to have that work-life balance. If anything, I guess for me, it's more like I try not to book a time where maybe there might be a morning corporate session at 8 a.m. and then a bunch of rapper dudes that want to come in at 8 p.m. Because yeah. then that'll, that'll just kill me, you know, being here from 8 in the morning till midnight or something. That'll burn you out quickly. I treat it like a full-time job and I, I try to give me some buffers of me time and, and a family time. But yeah, I mean, I think if you go too hard on yourself or if you push yourself too hard, you're going to burn yourself out. And, you know, ear fatigue, there's only so many hours you can put in the lab every day until your ears get tired as well. You also brought up, you said you gave an example that I think is very telling in that your corporate clients are going to want to work nine to five. Your music clients are going to want to work after that. And they're yeah. going to want to possibly work into the night. So scheduling must be absolutely key 
for that. Yeah, scheduling is key. You don't want to double book yourself or get in a situation where maybe you're recording a full band and then all of a sudden you have like one hour to strike the drum kit and all the mics and then turn the facility around to a podcast of three or four people. Yeah. But sometimes it is what it is. Sometimes the client's firm on their availability or there's moving parts. The CEO of the company is only available that day or or whatever. So you don't really have a choice. But if you can fan your projects out, I think that'd be ideal. Give yourself rests and breaks and get out of the facility, get some sunshine, go on a jog, stand, try not to sit all day. Well, we are out of time. Where can people find out more about you or the studio? You can check us out at our website, studiocirclerecordings.com. It's That'll link us to our other social media, you know, our Facebook, Instagram accounts, things like that. Well, very cool, Jermaine. It was great talking to you and learning about what you're doing in your world and the blend of music and corporate and all that. So uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Matt. It was, it was definitely my pleasure. Thank you for being a wonderful host. And I love what you do and keep up doing the great work. Thank you. I, I, will, I will do my best. You take care. All right. You too. Thank you. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Jermaine Hamilton here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plow on editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Mr. Chuck Smith for his lovely introduction and voice. So spread the word, connect with me on LinkedIn, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out. <laughs> <laughs>